My name is J.W. Oker. I'm an author, and I like to go out and look for weird stuff. I call it oddity. For more than a decade, I've sought out oddities of nature, oddities of art, oddities of culture and history. I believe that within a tank or two of gas, of any point in this country, is some seriously cool oddity, and that we all should go check it out. This is Odd Things I've Seen, the podcast. In episode seven of this podcast, just a few episodes back, I took you on a typical oddity hunt with me where I map out a handful of oddities and drive to them in a single day, a Saturday, a Sunday, someday on the weekend. It uh, was an okay episode. People have said nice things to me about it, but it wasn't quite exactly what I wanted to do. It didn't really work out exactly the way I wanted it to, and that's just mostly my failure as a narrator. I get kind of caught up in the actual oddity hunting and forget to do uh, what I'm supposed to do to tell you guys about it. So a couple weeks back, we were in Maryland, my home state. I haven't lived there for a decade, but it's my home state. And did another one where we kind of plotted a course of oddities and I tried to narrate it. I think I did less well on this one than I did on a jaunting in Connecticut, but I wanted to still include this as an episode because we saw some really cool oddity. A couple oddities that I've been trying to get to for years. Uh, We failed at one. And then we saw something that we weren't expecting to see. The whole trip, round trip, was about 150 miles. So last episode, I had to put off a week because I got sick and my voice got really bad. You can still kind of hear it on this trip. So it sounds flat and it sounds not enthusiastic about what we're seeing. And it just sounds kind of harsh. So excuse that and know that I was really ecstatic about seeing what we were seeing. Starting off with the unmarked grave of Herman Munster. So do you know who Fred Gwynn is? Fred Gwynn? Fred Gwynn. That's his grave we're going to see. Nothing? Hold on. Um, not Adam's family. <laughs> no, yeah, he's Herman Munster. Herman so Munster. he was the Frankenstein okay. guy. So he's buried here. That's what we're going to see first. Um, in Finksburg? Finksburg, Maryland. Finksburg, Maryland. But here's, here's, a, here's a fun fact for you. So Herman Munster, or Fred Gwynn, who played Herman Munster, he lived out his last years in Maryland and is buried in Maryland. Okay. Meanwhile, John Aston, who played Gomez Adams, the patriarch of the Adams family, right. born in Maryland, still lives in Maryland, still alive, still lives in Baltimore. Still alive. So both, yeah, <laughs> both, um, both of the head of the Monster Clan, head of the Adams Clan, are Marylanders, basically. Although Fred Gwynn was born in Manhattan, I think. Huh. Okay. So we've got Edgar Allan Poe, we've got Herman Munster, and I assume we'll get Gomez Adams at some point. So, level of difficulty on this one, though, is his grave is unmarked. <laughs> How big is the cemetery? I don't know. I've never been there before. Yeah. So, do you know what else he was in? Do you recognize him from anything else besides the monsters? No, I don't. So, his big movies, so he's been in a bunch of movies, obviously, but his big movies was My Cousin Vinny. You oh, saw that, right? Oh, yes. Love he, that movie. Do you know what role he played? Vinny? No, no, no. <laughs> He was the judge. He was the judge. All right. Oh, okay. All right. And then this other one that everybody knows is Pet Cemetery. Why? No, you saw this movie. I know. What did he play? He was Judd. Judd Crandall, the guy across the street. The old guy? Yeah. Oh. With a thick Maine accent. Yeah. Oh, I thought that was a real Mainer. <laughs> no, no, no. A Manhattanite. Wow. Let me pull up. 
Oh, the other cool thing about Fred Gwynn, he started out as a children's book writer and illustrator. And I think he even kept doing it toward, you know, throughout his acting career. Let me see what this church is. It is... Sandy Mount United Methodist Cemetery. That's where we're going. Taney Town. Lives in Taney Town, which is nearby. This is all not too far away from Baltimore. Take the next right onto Valhalla Drive, then your destination will be on the right. Alright, so it should be up here. This is the church. So the church this is it? Here. United Methodist Church? The Sandy Mount. Huh, it's a little bit. There's some people here. Your destination is on the right. Yeah. This might be awkward. It turned out not to be awkward. Uh, there were quite a few people there. It was a Saturday, so it wasn't Sunday level of crowds at the church, but there were some groundskeepers and a few people dropping stuff off at the church, but nobody eyed us. Nobody kind of asked us why we were there. So we went into the cemetery, which wrapped around two sides of the church, the side and the back. And as we rounded the side of the church to the main bulk of the cemetery, we saw a type of cemetery that we were not at all used to. It's just weird being used to New England graveyards. This is just not a New England graveyard. It's just open and farmland. So you can see like the windmill in the background, the farm over there. It's like farmland. Wide open sky. Oh yeah, brutal, brutal wide open sky. It's really hot. So we found the spot. The uh, directions online are pretty simple, honestly. Uh, it's a, just a big blank spot close to the back of the cemetery near uh, the Shannon Stone, like about 20 feet in front of the Shannon Stone and to the left. Uh, so Fred Gwynn died in 1993, he was only 66 years old, died of pancreatic cancer, and nobody really knows why his grave is unmarked. It's just unmarked. Yeah, Herman Munster above him right now. Once I had added the grave of Herman Munster to my collection of final resting places of icons of the macabre, we were ready to go take off to see our next oddity, which was a 300-year-old oak. So we're on our way to see the Arbutus Oak, which is a 300-year-old oak tree uh, in just south of Baltimore. But apparently we're just learning that you can't actually see the oak. You can't like drive up to it. It's in the middle of like four highways. So it's on a median, um, which I hate. So we're going to go down there anyway and see if we can't see it or stop. There's, there's Every single article starts out, you can't get near it. It's impossible to see. You have to take a picture on a, as you're flying by on the Beltway at 80 miles an hour. So we'll see what we can do. Like, nobody's saying don't go there because it's not public property. No, I think it's a historic site. They're saying it's not safe to actually stop your vehicle or inside of 95. I think that's the issue. But it also talks about all these people that are doing cleanup of the tree every few years. like the, Yeah, like... Volunteers, locals, people are trying to take pride in their 17th century tree. But the reason why the tree is so cool is its age, obviously, but it's not the oldest tree in Maryland. Um, it's also fascinating because it's supposed to have been there when like, General Lafayette walked by during the Revolutionary War. They found Native American artifacts at its base when they were building the highways back in the 1950s. So it's, it's and they actually planned, yeah, they moved the highways in order to save this, this tree. So, and back then it was, you know, 70 years younger. Yeah, 
It was a much less impressive tree back then. All right, two miles away. Let's see, we'll see if we see this thing from the beltway. The Baltimore beltway. See, Arbutus and three-fourths of a mile. Arbutus. Is that the name of the town? Yeah, Arbutus. I don't know what it means. I'm sure it's somebody's name, right? Hey Google. Oh, this thing can't reach Google ever these days. Look at my camera ready. Zoom in my side, do you think? Yeah, it's the passenger side. Again, I don't know how I don't know what these GPS coordinates are taking us. Alright, it's gonna be pretty close. It's right there. Oh, you're supposed to see it from that bridge, maybe? Is that where you're supposed to be to see it? I bet. I don't know. I, well, it's probably this guardrail, right? No way to see it, right? I don't think so. so that was a really good example of how half-assed I can be in my oddity hunting. A lot of times I do just enough research to know that I want to see a thing and kind of how to find it. In this case, I didn't find out until the actual drive to it that you can't just pull off to the side of the road and go see it. It's not impossible to see. We could have definitely looked at the map, found a place uh, you know away from the highway to park, and then hoofed it and bushwhacked our way into the median that held the Arbutus Oak. But because we had other things to see and we weren't the only ones in the van, I had other people in there besides my wife, we decided to just skip it. And that happens quite a bit in oddity hunting. You kind of miss things on that first try or you, you learn just enough on the site to know how to do it better when you come back. But... That's one reason to put multiple sites on a trip so that you can make sure you do see something interesting. And usually I have one kind of marquee oddity that I have to see, and if the rest are failures, it's still a successful trip. In this case, that was probably Fred Gwynn's grave, but it could also be what we were about to see next. So we're in Baltimore looking for the site where the Ouija board was named. Actually, I undersold that. It's not just the site where the Ouija board was named. It was the site where the Ouija board named itself. There's a few origin stories for how the Ouija board got the name Ouija. And one of them is when they were using one of the prototypes, it spelled that word out. And we were about to see the spot where it happened. It was just invented by one guy. Yeah, it's a little wobbly. Elijah Bond is supposed to have invented it, but then sold it to somebody, to somebody, to somebody. Yeah. That kind of thing. But Elijah Bond, his grave is the one with the actual Ouija board on that tombstone. Right. Greenmount Cemetery in here in Baltimore. I think that's the Washington Monument, right? Washington Monument? Yeah, no, Baltimore's Washington Monument. <laughs> so this is up near the Peabody Library. Where did that talk that one time? So I think they claim this to be the... America's first Washington Monument or something like that. One of those things that's like vague and probably not true. So you have to go, okay, oh yeah, okay, so it's before this, before you go around this, this Washington Monument. Uh, there it is, that's it. Oh, nice parking. 
All right, I'm in downtown Baltimore, about to walk up to the site where the Ouija board was named. Oh, excuse me. Uh, it's an old building, old brick building, but the bottom floor is a 7-Eleven, which is where the plaque is supposed to be that announces it. Uh, I don't see a plaque. Hmm, I really don't see a plaque. I have to do some quick on-the-spot research here. All right, apparently it's inside the 7-Eleven, so I should have saved my Slurpee allowance. Excuse me. Yeah, so there's literally a plaque right here inside this busy 7-Eleven that I'm going to have to get pictures of. I'll read it to you later, I think. Not here in the store. I'm going to go buy a Slurpee, I guess. So yeah, the Ouija board was invented in Maryland. The idea of a planchette and communicating to the spirits in this way is an old one, but it was in Maryland where the idea was really productized and turned into the Ouija board. All right, now that I am in the privacy of my house, let me read you the Ouija board plaque. At this site in April 1890, one of the world's most popular methods for divining one's fate received its name, and the Ouija board, Baltimore's famous mystifying oracle, registered trademark, was born. It was here at 529 North Charles Street where the famous Ouija board received its name. According to those present, the board named itself when asked what it wanted to be called. On that night, an American icon was created, one that every generation revisits. Led by William Fold, Ouija became a leading industry in Baltimore, produced in 13 different factories across the city from 1890 to 1966. In 1919, Ouija's first manufacturer, Charles Kennard, recounted the origins of Ouija's name to the Baltimore American and Sun papers. And this is what he said. One evening, about April 1890, while trying the board with a Miss Peters in a large boarding house at that time on the corner of Charles and Center Streets, I remarked that we had not yet settled upon a name, and as the board had helped us in other ways, we would ask it to propose one. It spelled out O-U-I-J-A. When I asked the meaning of the word, it said, good luck. Miss Peters thereupon withdrew from her neck a chain which had at the end a locket. On it, the figure of a woman, and at the top the word, Ouija. We asked her if she had thought of this name, and she said she had not. We then adopted the word. So I actually don't think I knew that part of the story that the word Ouija was on her locket making it very suspicious that that's what the board yielded as a name. So the block that this 7-Eleven is on is actually a really interesting one. It's in the neighborhood of Mount Vernon, Belvedere. And in that neighborhood, right there within 20 steps of it, is the George Peabody Library, which is a library of Johns Hopkins that is gorgeous and beautiful, and I highly re recommend sticking your head in there. While we were there, actually, we saw a original edition of the portrait of Dorian Gray signed by Oscar Wilde himself, just sitting in a glass case right there in the library. Also within steps is the Walters Museum, which is a free art and culture museum well worth seeing as, as well. And right in the middle of those three sites is a giant column called Baltimore's Washington Monument. It's about 178 feet tall and they started building it in 1815. They call it the first ever Washington Monument started, <laughs> which is an awkward phrasing. And that awkward phrasing is because even though it was the first one started, the Washington Monument in DC beat it to the finish. So <laughs> they can't say it's the first Washington Monument because it wasn't finished first. 
it was the first Washington Monument started. But it's well worth seeing. And just for a few bucks, you can go in there and climb to the top and get a view of Baltimore, which is what we did really on a whim. Uh, Not my wife and not the baby. They were there. But me and my niece decided to take those 227 stairs to the top as they winded around in a very tight arc with very small stairs up to the top of this monument where we saw a pretty amazing view of the city. All right, so climbing 227 steps up to the top of the Washington, Baltimore's Washington Monument. Uh, It's a stone curving staircase. I'm already out of breath. Then we have to walk all the way down too, you know. Let me know if you want to take a break. You're not. Oh, I definitely will, but in case you want to take one for me. Take your time then, don't kill yourself. I'm looking for one of those signs that says how many steps you've taken. Alright, I'm above Baltimore right now. 227 steps up in their Washington Monument. I can see the entire freaking city. And my lungs are about to burst. When in Baltimore though, do this. Once we had climbed down those hundreds of steps, we were off to one more site in Baltimore. A site that I try to get to every time I'm down there if I can. And that's the Edgar Allan Poe house, the place where he lived when he lived in Baltimore. Except that I was going for a different reason than I usually do. So I'm right across from the Edgar Allan Poe house in Baltimore, Maryland. I'm here not to see that actually, because I've seen it a few times. Not that I wouldn't see it anytime I come by, but right now across the street, there's brand new apartments that were built, uh, completely changing the entire neighborhood. And in those apartments is a walkway and In that walkway is a brick with mine and my wife's name on it because we donated a little tiny bit of money to the Poe House in order to have our names inscribed right here where Edgar Allan Poe lived. So pretty cool. So if you're ever in town, check out the Poe House. Come see my brick. Take a picture, send it to me. All right, so we just got out of the Edgar Allan Poe House here in Baltimore. I didn't do any recording inside because it was tiny and lots of people, surprisingly enough, and also extremely hot. Um, that's it. That's the road trip. What do we see again? We saw Fred Gwynn's grave. We did not see the Arbutus tree. Well, we did, but we don't know. <laughs> we don't know. We saw the Ouija board plaque at 7-Eleven. Went up to the Washington Monument of Baltimore. Saw the George Peabody Library. The Poe House and the Poe Brick. Yeah. Yeah. Man, it's so hot, though. It's, like, disgusting hot. It's a good thing about doing a podcast, though. See how disgusting I am. All right, and that's our episode for this bye week. Again, I, I really like this idea of narrating these oddity treks, but I'm not quite there. I know I'm not quite there. I know you know I'm not quite there. But as soon as I figure out how to present these trips in a way that's orally interesting, I'm going to keep trying. So hopefully you at least enjoyed the oddities themselves because they are some really cool oddities worth seeing when you're in Maryland and part of my quest to prove to everybody that Maryland is a spooky place where the burial site of Edgar Allan Poe of Herman Munster Gomez Adams lives in Maryland where the home of the Blair Witch the Ouija board was invented within the borders of Maryland 
So it's a place that you don't usually think of as creepy or spooky, but it really is. I'm J.W. Oker, and this has been another episode of Odd Things I've Seen, the podcast. 